Hi, this is Zane Horowitz and the whole crew here at the Oregon Poison Center for October 14th, 2010. And we have the uh, title today is um, Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, Something Blue. And of course, we're talking about methylene blue. And I'm going to start off talking about the old part here. Um, I found an article here from the British Medical Journal from May 25th, 1912, although clearly this is not the first use of methylene blue, but this describes what was a common nostrum of the day, Dewitt's kidney and bladder pills for rheumatism, backache, and kidney trouble. And there's a letter to the editor saying that no doubt that the majority of blue and green urines are due to taking this drug, which in fact contained methylene blue. And in fact, it goes on to say that, uh, ha-ha, this is often done as a prank by medical personnel, those silly little medical students who drop it into people's um, food and they're suddenly their urine turns blue and, and green. And it mentions that methylene blue has been used for a long time. It's uh, tetramethylthionine hydrochlorate. Anywhere from one to three grams is given for a chronic nephritis, cystitis, gonorrhea, and as treatment for bilharzia hematobia. Anyone who knows what that is? It's schistosomiasis. Um, and, of course, it immediately turns their uh, urine peacock blue, according to the author. And he goes back to cite a study done in Glasgow in the Edinburgh Medical Journal back in August of 1902, nearly uh, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, which the lecturer in chemistry and toxicology at the Westminster Hospital uh, established that... Um, all of the blue urines that uh, were seen up to that time were almost invariably due to either methylene blue or indigo blue, which they didn't go on to talk about. But he was uh, then goes on to talk about a case that the writer for uh, John Irvine, not the writer John Irvine that we know, but the writer back in 1912 named John Irvine, wrote this letter, said he consulted on a police constable who complained of pain in his head and neck and had a little bit of a temperature and a little bit of influenza, and then he passed a green urine. And he then remembered that that evening when he fell ill, he found himself wandering around Huntersfield, three miles from his home, confused. And he looked at his urine, and he's conf he's convinced that both the confusion, which we'll bring in later with a more up-to-date article as possible explanation, and the blue urine was due to DeWitt's little pills. And it's possible to say whether or not he really took that pill that day or the day before, but he speculates that this is a side effect previously unreported with DeWitt's pills. So there you go, some historical background. Um, moving forward, I thought, which is a good, interesting case, which kind of sums up some of the basic physiology, which will be the basis for all the other case reports and articles we'll talk about. This is a uh, CPC-like clinical problem-solving article called Why Why Matters uh, from the New England Journal from December 2004, and it starts out with pieces of a case and then discussion dribbled in between as the little uh, clues to what went on is uh, discovered by William Jansen, its co-authors. It's a 38-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with shortness of breath and jaundice. Previously day, she attended a wedding. That's where we got our little title from. And a uh, headache developed, dizziness, her urine was dark brown, and she was short of breath and uh, had yellow discoloration of her eyes. And it goes on saying, well, this is kind of classic for her, either hepatobiliary disorders or hemolysis. 
Um, and maybe she was sepsis, but the story unfolds that at the wedding she consumed Chinese dumplings with salt-cured meat and a glass of wine. And nobody else who was at the wedding, who ate all that stuff, became sick. And the author goes on, talks about some different types of food poisoning, but also mentions that acute hemolytic episodes can occur with people who have fava beans and G6PD deficiency. Um, but so far, no fava beans were noted to be ending the food. The scenario continues that the patient had some mild anemia, but no history of liver disease. Her ethnic background was that she was Vietnamese. Uh, she was afebrile. Her pulse was 98, blood pressure 112. Uh, and her oxygen saturation, which was telling and almost pathognomonic, was 85%. And her skin was jaundiced, and her sclera were icteric, and she had a soft murmur that was present. And noted that her conjunctiva were pale. There was a slight murmur, a little hyperkinetic impulse, um, and the... Oxygen saturation of 85% did not adequately explain her hemolysis. And then at that point, talk about maybe this is methemoglobinemia comes to the fore. Talks a little bit about methemoglobinemia being the oxidized form of iron in the hemoglobin molecule, as we all know. And it can't carry oxygen. And when you put your pulse ox on, it often reads 85%, no matter how much oxygen um, you give. But both hemolysis and methemoglobin can occur together and suspect this may occur in someone who has G6D deficiency or some unusual hemoglobin variant. And um, so the labs are drawn. The Y count's 13, hemoglobin's 8, a little bit low. The reticulocyte count is 1.8. The bilirubin level is 9.3. The LDH is elevated above 2,000 when the AST uh, was 120. And a urine dipstick was positive for blood, but no red cells or casts were seen on micro. They do more of a workup with hepatitis serology. Um, they give her oxygen. It doesn't make anything better. They get a uh, ABG, which is essentially normal, with an oxygen saturation of 430 millimeters of mercury, P uh, PCO2 of 438 too and yet persistently the pulse oximetry reads at 85%. And they get, as I say, the diagnostic test, which is the methemoglobin level of 8.8, .8, which is a little surprising given how blue she looks, because that really shouldn't impart too much of a blue color to you. But he goes on to say that at this point he favors the hypothesis of a hemolytic episode, possibly to G6PD deficiency, producing what's known as a Heinz body hemolytic anemia, which is... Uh, sort of the common thread of people who get methemoglobinemia with oxidant stress. She was treated because she was symptomatic with methylene blue, and um, she got better. And they actually sent a G6PD level off, and it was a little bit low, 3.9 normal range being 4.6 to 13.5. And they say, well, when you get a G6PD level in the midst of a hemolytic crisis, it may be falsely normal because the way oxidant stress works is it knocks off your sicker cells that have less G6PD and preserves your more newer cells that have better levels of G6PD. So you're sort of like selecting out a population of low G6PD um, cells. She was seen later, she was doing better, everything resolved, and uh, talks a little bit about methemoglobinemia, which we're going to get into um, in a lot more detail um, 
So basically, under normal circumstances, there's an enzyme called methemoglobin NADH-dependent cytochrome B5 reductase, which is a mouthful. It used to be called diaphorase, which was less of a mouthful, but of course they had to make that a little more complicating for us. And that maintains uh, converting most of our methemoglobin in our body, which existed about 1% back to a normal level of less than 1%. Um, and these people have G6PD is an X-linked um, uh, chromosome, and we have sort of selective destruction of different uh, um, cells, and so different people express this differently as far as amount of G6PD deficiency, and they merely go throughout life without any problems until they have fava beans, or in this case, the salted, cured, nitrate-rich um, uh, food that induced her hemoglobin uh, hemolysis and her hemoglobinopathy of methemoglobinemia. So that's sort of a, a basic setup for a kind of a classic case that we see with methemoglobinemia. And of course, the treatment for that is methylene blue. And for years, it's sort of been one of the few things and the only things that we've thought about using methylene blue for. But we're going to explore both the use of methylene blue, it's places where it works and where it doesn't work, and where some other odd places and some new things where it's caused both problems and some new potential therapies. So kind of going around, we're going to start off with our residents, Cynthia Horak, telling us about methylene blue-induced Heinz body hemolytic anemia in two children. Okay, this article is entitled Methylene Blue, but it's Heinz Body Hemolytic Anemia. It was in the Archives of Pediatric Adolescent Medicine in March of 1994. And the authors described two cases um, in which they saw methylene blue-induced Heinz body anemia. So they actually explored these two infants. One was a neonate with trisomy 21 exposed to methylene blue as an interoperative diagnostic marker, and the other was a neonate treated with methylene blue for type 2 glutaric acidemia. So they go in and they describe these cases. Um, they first let us know that methylene blue is used for a number of things in the pediatric and neonatal setting. Um, one is to treat uh, hemoglobinemia in um, infants that are exposed to nitrite-containing well water. Another is a diagnosis of recurrent aspiration or GERD. And another is to check ET tube or J tube placement in patients. So the first patient was a um, 2,400-gram infant female with trisomy 21 and diagnosed with duodenal atresia at birth, born at 37 weeks gestation. So her one- and five-minute APGAR scores were both seven. She was determined to be critically ill, and on day one, she underwent surgical correction of her duodenal atresia. She was given an undetermined amount of methylene blue dye through her J and G tubes um, to establish what the integrity of the tubes were at the time. Several hours later, she was noted to avoid green-blue urine, um, and then subsequently over the next 24 to 48 hours, she developed jaundice. They started phototherapy, and they actually boosted her to triple phototherapy on day four because of increasing jaundice and associated increasing bilirubinemia. Um, they give a fabulous figure of how her hematocrit was actually seen to be dropping and how her bilirubin levels were increasing. Um, on day five, they, she became febrile, and antibiotic therapy was started. They also noted that the infant had mild erythematous rash on the chest. And then a week out, she started to very acutely decompensate. She developed metabolic acidosis, hypotension, liver and renal failure, and respiratory compromise requiring intubation. 
the skin over her chest at that time was noted to be red and denuding. On day eight, they actually stopped phototherapy because her bilirubins continued to increase. Um, she was continued to be critically ill with elevating LFTs at this time on maximum uh, hemodynamic support. And on day 15, they decided to stop support and allow the patient to pass. At autopsy, they noted that the spleen had infarction. They did G6PD um, levels and dehydrogenase levels, and these were actually noted to be normal in this patient. The second patient was an infant that was actually transferred to the Johns Hopkins Hospital at a 36 to 37 week gestation for a suspected metabolic disorder. The patient had metabolic acidosis, uh, hyperammonemia, and urine smelling of old sneakers. She was comatose on arrival, needing hemodialysis. She was all a uric, um, and peripheral blood smear of this patient exhibited birth cells, spherocytes, and polychromasia. She had a negative Heinz body preparation at that time, however. She was diagnosed with uh, butyric aciduria type 2, and the treatment for this at the time was methylene blue, and she received a very large dose of this at 50 milligrams, 20 mg per kg, on day 4 of life. On day 5, she um, continued to have decreasing neurologic status. Day 6, she was started avoiding brown urine. Day 8, they started phototherapy. Day 9, she developed desquamation and boli on her hands. And the Heinz body preparation on day 10 re revealed more than 95% of red blood cells with hemoglobin precipitates. Um, this patient also ended up going on to pass. So patient 2, they go on in their commentary to talk about how this patient had a gross um, overdose, so probably a tenfold overdose of methylene blue, which might have caused her demise. But they go on to talk about how typically in these patients, in these two patients at least, they had the common theme that anemia peaked between 3 and 13 days and the bilies increased in a more consistent pattern between 2 and 5 days after exposure. They recognize that in these patients, typically a Heinz body smear is done with a special stain. However, they were able to see this on typical right stain which they thought was a new, um, new evidence in this case. So they go on to describe essentially four ways that they think that this could have happened with the Heinz body formation. One is that the patient, like we talked about, patient two had excess dye. Um, another one is if we recall our oxidative reduction of methylene blue, like we were talking about, we need the G6PD enzyme, which allows us to form NADPH. And the NADPH is a key... Um, element in reducing methylene blue to leukomethylene blue, which can then catalyze the reduction of that hemoglobin to hemoglobin. Um, so they go on to say that there could be people that are either clearly G6PD deficient, which we can measure, or possibly deficient in this NADPH flavin reductase. Um, another etiology could be that the infants have unstable hemoglobin, or possibly that they have neonatal RBC instability with oxidative stress. So they go on to talk about how um, the three things that they found with this, with this um, Heinz body formulation with methylene blue exposure is that clearly these patients had um, hyperbilirubinemia, they had skin changes that were concerning, as well as um, the Heinz body anemia formation. So they go on to recommend that more, more, more research is needed to actually develop the, what the mechanisms are of the underlying hemolytic effects of methylene blue and to better understand how we can predict an individual patient's 
how to further test if ethylene blue is actually going to cause these high spotty hemolytic anemias. They had some proposals of doing things such as a dye decolorization test, which they don't really go into, but uh, maybe using non-redox uh, dyes in actually treating these patients. All right. Yeah, nice presentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, we always talk about before you have methylene blue, you always have to worry about P6PD deficiency. But no one ever thinks about that beforehand. They always think about it afterwards. If it doesn't work or they induce hemolysis, Heinz body, hemolytic anemia. I guess you could potentially take the patient's serum and add methylene blue to it and see if you induce hemolysis in the mm-hmm. test tube and sort of do a uh, an in vitro kind of diagnostic. But um, I think that this article is kind of interesting, and it's sort of two non-methemoglobin cases where they got methylene blue. Clearly one was an overdose, and sort of one of the caveats, at least that's repeated in many of the textbooks, is you don't want to give too much methylene blue to start getting more than 7 milligrams per kilo in and of itself as an oxidant stress and will induce hemolysis even in normal people possibly, and certainly anyone has genetic susceptibility is at risk uh, for that as well. So let's change gears a little bit, talk about uh, another type of methemoglobinemia that seems to be more resistant to treatment. And Gail, our med student's going to talk about a few articles regarding dapsone. Okay, so the first article is an article called Dapsone-Induced Methemoglobinemia. It was in the Annals of uh, Pharmacotherapy, 1998. And this is a case report of a 69-year-old female that received dapsone for PCP prophylaxis, therapeutic doses, and ended up with methemoglobinemia. Um, the authors actually start with just a brief description of dapsone. Um, it's a synthetic sulfone um, antibiotic. It's well-known, or historically known, for its treatment of leprosy, um, also used for dermatitis herpetiformis. Um, and some other uses, brown recluse spider bites, um, inflammatory bowel disorders, leishmaniasis, malaria, um, and some other rheumatic uh, disorders. So uh, this case report, this is a 69, report was a 69-year-old female. Uh, she was admitted to the hospital for rule-out sepsis. Um, she had had a leukopenia for three to four months, um, and she is a status post-orthotopic liver transplant two years prior to this admission. After she received uh, the liver, she started to develop uh, renal dysfunction, and so she was requiring dialysis three times a week. Um, because she was immunosuppressed, um, she was thought to need PCP prophylaxis. Uh, because of her leukopenia, they didn't want to treat her uh, with uh, Bactrim. Um, and then, so she was started on uh, pentamidine, but this was stopped, secondary to side effects. So she received, um, the Dapsone was originally started on hospital day 13. She received it for 11 days. Um, and then between hospital day 24 and 52, she did not receive any Dapsone. On hospital day 45, she actually received a, a liver, or a, sorry, had a renal transplant. Um, one week after the renal transplant, she was started back on Dapsone, and this was continued for nine days. Other medications she was on at this time included tacrolimus, prednisone, digoxin, um, famotidine, acyclovir, and nystatin. So on day nine of treatment with Dapsone, this is when she started having dyspnea and uh, desaturation, oxygen desaturation. 
um, unknown etiology. Um, so on day two, her O2 sats were 85% while she was on six liters of O2. Um, <coughs> decreased down to 83% uh, despite 96% O2 administration. Um, and hospital day two, I believe, was when she had her first met hemoglobin or her met hemoglobin level measured, and it was measured at 13.6, um, and it peaked the next day at 15.9. Uh, Dapsone was considered uh, thought to be the causative agent. It was discontinued. She was given methylene blue, 60 milligrams IV, um, and she, the met hemoglobin level decreased to two percent. Um, went back up a little bit. She received a second dose of 60 milligrams IV six hours later. Um, and second measurement or measurement after that of, uh, hemoglobin 2.4%. Um, she received a couple doses of activated charcoal and then eventually finally her levels of hemoglobin did come down. And so then the authors, um, just talk a little bit about, um, hemoglobinemia. And uh, so the formation of methemoglobin uh, occurs when iron um, present in the un unoxygenated, unoxygenated hemoid is oxidized from the Fe2 plus state to the ferric state, Fe3 plus. And at that point, methemoglobin is unable to carry um, oxygen or carbon dioxide. There are basically three ways um, that um, affect, or there are three um, systems that affect our met hemoglobin concentrations in our erythrocytes. The first is NADH, the second is NADPH, and the third is through glutathione. Methylene blue acts through the NADPH um, pathway. This accounts for about 5% um, of our reducing activity. And it basically, the methylene blue acts as a cofactor in this process um, and increases the rate of, re the rate of this reaction. Uh, met hemoglobin uh, concentrations, they talk a little bit about um, signs and symptoms. So met hemoglobin concentrations occur between 20 and 45% and um, is associated with dizziness, fatigue, headache, tachycardia, and weakness. And then at concentrations above 45%, um, you begin to see acidosis, cardiac arrhythmias, coma, dyspnea, and seizures. Um, patients can become cyanotic at met hemoglobin levels of around 15%. Um, and basically, you should start to think about met hemoglobinemia when you see cyanosis or dyspnea that does not respond to oxygen. Um, we already talked about um, kind of the G6PD. Um, so a little bit about uh, Dapsone. Uh, again, Dapsone... Um, its uh, peak concentrations usually are attained within two to six hours after oral administration. It's 70 to 90% protein bound, and the volume of distribution is 1.5 liters per kilogram. Uh, it's metabolized in the liver, and it's actually thought that um, some of the adverse side effects that you see, the hematological side effects that can be associated with, like hemolytic anemias, um, anemia, methemoglobinemia, are actually through its toxic uh, metabolites. Um, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. <laughs> the important one is hydroxyalamine. Okay, there we go, hydroxyalamine. So then the authors also just discuss, um, they outline about five more uh, case reports in which doxone toxicity um, were resulted from actually therapeutic doses, um, and all of them were pretty similar. They 
Dapsone was given for various reasons. All the patients seemed to present about five days to a week or to two weeks, I suppose, after um, initial administration of Dapsone. All of them at hemoglobin levels were around 20, a little above 20%. One of them was actually down around 8, but for the most part up around 28% or above 20%. Um, in some of the cases, methylene blue was administered. In some cases, it was not. And uh, all the patients improved as soon as the Dapsone was discontinued. Uh, so really, the main point of this was that the authors was talking a little bit about how it appeared that there was some sort of correlation between Dapsone. When she was receiving Dapsone and she was receiving hemodialysis on a regular basis, she did not develop methemoglobinemia. As soon as she had the renal transplant, she uh, was not receiving hemodialysis as consistently. And at this point, that's when she seemed to develop um, again, the met hemoglobinemia, and this was, again, a case series of, or case reports discussing how uh, dapsone at therapeutic levels may actually result in met hemoglobinemia. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, the, I guess one of the keys here was that uh, dapsone is very well removed by hemodialysis, and right. so she, when she was on it, she was getting hemodialyzed, both it and likely the uh, culprit here, which is the hydroxylalamine metabolite goes away, and some people have even suggested using cimetidine in cases, because often these are resistant to uh, methylene blue, cimetidine to hopefully block the conversion of dapsone to the hydroxyalamine derivative, which is actually causing usually a prolonged episode of methemoglobinemia when dapsone is used. Um, We don't use that much dapsone anymore, but um, recently, this year, there was a kind of review article out of Korea with uh, some authors from Stony Brook that talked about their experience with dapsone intoxication and its clinical course. So we'll let Gail continue on the dapsone tale here. Okay, so this article uh, was called Dapsone Intoxication, Clinical Course and Characteristics. And again, this is actually from this year by Park um, and Company. (laughs) Okay, so this is kind of interesting. This is, was a historical or retrospective observational study that looked at uh, 46 patients in uh, Wonju, South Korea. Um, it was a, a single center um, conducted between September 2003 and December 2008. And kind of the, the reason that this was such a perfect uh, case series was that there was a leper colony um, in this area, and also um, it was it, you were able to buy dapsone without prescription up until 2001. Um, and so the um, authors in this, they conducted the study, and basically what they wanted to see uh, what were uh, predictors of mortality. So the outcome in the study was uh, in-hospital mortality. Um, I should describe the population a little bit more. It was an adult emergency department population that were all admitted for um, met hemoglobinemia secondary to Dapsone. Um, It was a mixture of acute uh, overdose, chronic overdose. It was a mixture of cases, basically. Um, And again, the outcome was in-hospital mortality, and they wanted to see what predicted, um, what was predictive of death. and so, <laughs> basically what they found was they stratified, um, in their analysis, they stratified groups two ways. First, they stratified according to age, and then they stratified according to mortality. 
so survival and, uh, and, and death. And what they found was that um, period elapse after ingestion was significantly associated with increased mortality in these patients. Um, they found that older people tended to do worse. Um, they tended to do worse even uh, taking, uh, coming in with lower dosages and having actually higher or lower levels of methemoglobin or higher oxygen levels. So, and they also found that mental status change was highly predictive of mortality. And it was also older people tended to come in with more mental status change, which you would somewhat expect. One of the other predictors of mortality was um, oxygen saturation levels. So if you had higher oxygen sats, you did better. Um, and so, yeah, those are really the main findings. The two, again, the two main predictors of mortality that they found were time after ingestion and altered mental status. And then they found that people that were older tended to do worse. And so... This just kind of brought up um, a little bit of discussion about when to treat and how it was important to actually look at the patient clinically um, as opposed to just looking at the MET hemoglobin level or the dose of dapsone because these didn't actually seem to be as important in predicting mortality. Yeah, I, yeah, another study that shows when you have a disease, the older you are, the less likely you are to do well. Um, but it was sort of interesting in that their perspective is they do treat a lot of these folks as a result of having uh, leprosy still very highly prevalent in, in that country. They're also the people who died, the levels were not what we would consider top, this, you know, super lethal levels. There's a table there and levels range from the high 30s up to 50 and clearly you know you're going to be symptomatic at that level but most people really wouldn't expect you to die if treated if your levels were in the 40s uh, there was one person at a level of 50 but most of them were were lower than that and a lot of them were sick with all sorts of other things like they first presented in shock and pneumonia and a variety of other comorbid factors so I think that has a lot to do with it if you're on dapsone for um, reason to suppress uh, your inflammatory response and you end up with uh, kind of a multi-organ system failure, you're not going to do uh, very well. I'm going to change gears a little bit and go to what's considered sort of a bizarre uh, off-label use of uh, methylene blue, um, although somewhat controversial in the field of oncology. It's to treat a rare complication from ifosfamide induced encephalopathy. So our medical student, Grant, is going to chat about that. Okay, so um, the title of this paper is Methylene Blue for Management of Ifosfamide Induced Encephalopathy. It's uh, from the Annals of Pharmacotherapy in February of 2006. Um, it includes several case reports and one retrospective chart review uh, with the objective to evaluate the use of methylene blue for treatment of iphosphamide-induced encephalopathy. Um, so a little background, iphosphamide uh, is a structural analog of cyclophosphamide, and uh, it's an alkylating chemotherapy agent. It's metabolized by the CYP450 system to its active compound, iphosphamide mustard. And encephalopathy uh, is a known adverse effect of iphosphamide. There's um, EEG data confirming uh, evidence of metabolic encephalopathy um, as a result of the therapy. Uh, it occurs in about 5 to 60% of patients and can occur anywhere between 12 and 146 hours after uh, the start of administration and resolve um, spontaneously 48 to 72 hours after 
cessation of iphosphamide. Um, it's thought that the toxic metabolite of iphosphamide, chloracetaldehyde, and its effects on the CNS is uh, is what causes the encephalopathy. It's known oral dose doses cause higher incidence than IV doses, and the more rapidly you infuse it, the more likely uh, you already get it. It's proposed that methylene blue might be a way to um, treat uh, this encephalopathy, and uh, there's a few proposed mechanisms for this. Uh, one, um, methylene blue uh, blocks the uh, toxic effect of iphosphamide metabolites on flavoproteins by working as <coughs> an electron acceptor. Um, it's also been proposed that inhibition of the formation of chloracetaldehyde itself uh, by inhibition of extrahepatic monoamine oxidases um, could help. And also uh, restoration of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide function, uh, which would allow oxidation of the toxic metabolites. So the largest part of the study uh, is a retrospective review of uh, retrospective chart review um, over a four-year period. Uh, there were 52 patients that received iphosphamide. Of those 52, 12 developed grade 2 or higher neurotoxicity. That's a grade that's given um, by the National Cancer Institute um, for grading encephalopathy. So uh, of the 12 that uh, developed neurotoxicity, 8 of those 12 were treated with methylene blue. And uh, <clears throat> all of those 8 uh, were given methylene blue in 6 doses per day. Uh, of IV methylene blue. Um, three of those patients recovered in 12 hours, one recovered in 24 hours, two in 48 hours, and two in 72 hours. Now, um, three of those eight who uh, were given methylene blue were also given four prophylactic doses per day of IV methylene blue. Um, and two of those three uh, did develop neurotoxicity again, although uh, at a lower grade, and uh, one of those did not um, develop further neurotoxicity symptoms at all. Um, it's important to note that uh, in all of the four patients not treated with methylene blue in this chart review, uh, their symptoms also resolve spontaneously in 48 hours. So, um, so if we go back and remember, four of the patients, or about 50%, who did receive methylene blue had symptoms resolved in 48 to 72 hours anyway. So um, not a significant difference uh, in overall resolution of symptoms. Uh, and or no different from those who didn't receive any therapy. It also wasn't noted whether or not those patients received uh, Mesna, um, and whether or not that would have helped. Mesna is a drug usually given with uh, cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide therapy to prevent uh, hemorrhagic cystitis. Um, so moving right along, there's uh, several case reports here. Uh, uh, there's a case report for two patients, uh, one of which is an 18-year-old female that was uh, taking iphosphamide, <clears throat> Mesna and doxorubicin, um, and she was given methylene blue on day three for encephalitis symptoms of her uh, day three of her chemotherapy cycle, uh, and her symptoms resolved in 30 minutes. So uh, this is a pretty quick resolution of symptoms. And then she was given prophylactic treatment three times a day for all her further chemotherapy, and she showed no more neurotoxic symptoms. In the same case report, there was another patient with a uh, history of iphosphamide-induced encephalopathy, and uh, this patient was given uh, prophylactic four times a day for the next two cycles, and again experienced uh, no encephalitis this time around. So uh, it showed a rapid resolution in one pa uh, patient and prophylaxis in uh, one patient in that study. Um, moving along, there was also a 68-year-old woman um, who uh, 
she was uh, on high phosphamide medicine just platinum, and 28 hours in, uh, she experienced some encephalopathy. And she was given 50 milligrams of methylene blue and had resolution in 10 minutes. So again, another case where there was rapid resolution of symptoms. Um, another case report describes a 48-year-old uh, woman with ovarian cancer. It was on doxorubicin and hypothamide. Um, she experienced lethargy and uh, <clears throat> encephalopathic symptoms 38 hours into her treatment. Uh, they gave her some lorazepam, thinking it would help, uh, but it, there was no help. She gained comatose. And then they decided to give her 60 milligrams uh, of methylene blue, kind of like the previous patient. And she showed improvement within two hours. So uh, again, um, somewhat of a rapid resolution of symptoms. Um, another article describes uh, four different patients. Um, one patient received uh, iphosomide over 24 hours and developed grade 3 neurotoxicity. Um, three days... Uh, <clears throat> after uh, chemotherapy, and uh, this patient was also given methylene blue, and their symptoms resolved in nine hours, which is uh, fairly rapid, much less than the uh, average uh, spontaneous resolution symptoms. Another patient um, received ifosamide, uh over one hour on uh, for five days, three cycles, and this patient, uh, again, developed neurotoxicity. Um, and had resolution of symptoms 24 hours after uh, administration of methylene blue. Um, another patient was given uh, um, methylene blue uh, four times a day for uh, 24 hours, starting three hours before his last dose of uh, ifosamide and didn't experience any neurotoxicity with uh, their last dose. Um, and he was pre-treated for all future uh, chemotherapy treatments with methylene blue uh, as prophylactic treatment and did not experience any subsequent neurotoxicity. And finally, a uh, fourth patient um, was given ifosamide for five days, uh, each dose of a one hour. She developed grade three neurotoxicity uh, in her second cycle but did not receive any uh, treatment with spontaneous improvement after a few days. She was given methylene blue um, orally three times a day with her third cycle of iphosomine, and uh, her uh, neurotoxic symptoms were less, she did develop neurotoxic symptoms, but less so than uh, her previous cycle. Um, so uh, in this report, it's important to know that patients one and two experience resolution of symptoms with methylene blue in nine to 48 hours, so that's uh, less uh, than we would expect spontaneously. And, uh, Patients three and four received methylene blue as secondary prophylaxis, which did seem to be effective for reducing or avoiding encephalopathy. Uh, next, we have another case report of a 10-year-old boy uh, was treated with uh, ifosamide, mesda, and etoposide. Um, on day three, developed grade two neurotoxicity, and uh, his symptoms resolved spontaneously in 24 hours. So for the next cycle, um, he had no symptoms. And on the third cycle, uh, he was given... Um, he, he developed grade three and was given uh, methylene blue, and, but his symptoms didn't resolve for 72 hours. And finally, uh, there's a case report of a 30-year-old woman um, who developed status epilepticus during her treatment. Um, and then a year later, um, they, she uh, had a repeat of ifosamide treatment. Uh, and uh, she was given methylene blue three times a day starting the day before the chemotherapy, and she developed no symptoms of cephalopathy.
So overall, again, this is limited data. This is just uh, chart reviews and um, case reports. It's a fairly new use of methylene blue. So obviously some control clinical trials are there. There is a proposed mechanism, um, which, you know, show prior probability that maybe this uh, might be effective. And summarizing this paper, uh, there is there seems to be evidence of at least modest, uh, modestly effective um, use of methylene blue for treating iphosphamide-induced encephalopathy. Um, and there seems to be little evidence to support the use of methylene blue for prophylaxis of this encephalopathy. Um, seeing as how there are many instances uh, where uh, symptoms evolve on their own in less than uh, times where treatments were used, prophylactic treatments were used. All right, so an off-label use of methylene blue for sort of a rare chemotherapy-induced encephalopathy. Um, Pat wants to remind us that there's a trivia question here. What is the metabolite of cyclophosphamide that causes, causes hemologic cystitis? For our fellow. Dr. French will research that question and uh, get back with the panel here shortly. Since Pat is studying for his boards, he probably yeah. has a <laughs> flashcard on this, and the answer is... Acrolein. Acrolein is correct. <laughs> yes. A couple more up there. We'll get to the, we'll get to the rest of them later. Okay. But this is an interesting article, because buried somewhere in it is the suggestion that the mechanism for this problem is MAOI inhibition sort of leads us to the last group of articles we're going to talk about and sort of a new emerging problem with the use of methylene blue for other uh, uses than methemoglobinemia is this serotonin-like syndrome. And to start off telling us about yet another use for methylene blue is the management in the guidelines for intraoperative use in parathyroid surgery is our medical student, Russ. Okay, this uh, is an article titled uh, Parathyroid Surgery and Methylene Blue, a review with guidelines for safe interoperative use. This is from uh, the journal Laryngoscope in 2009 by uh, Pollock, Duffiner, and Fernandez MDs. Um, so, this uh, article is of particular interest for uh, ENT surgeons because um, IV methylene blue has uh, traditionally been used. Uh, preoperatively for uh, parathyroid surgery, uh, parathyroid adenomas, that sort of thing. Uh, because of the properties of methylene blue, uh, it becomes a very obvious marker of parathyroid tissue because it binds selectively, avidly um, to parathyroid tissue. So once they uh, are operating, they can uh, distinguish parathyroid tissue from the surrounding uh, thyroid, nerve, etc. tissue. Um, so they uh, were looking at this article because uh, there's been a recent uh, decline in the use of methylene blue by ENT surgeons because of concerns of safety in light of reports of uh, 26 cases of post-operative toxic me metabolic encephalopathy. Um, so uh, as we've been talking about, it's known that uh, methylene blue shares a lot of properties with uh, the M MAO inhibitors. Uh, these are historically uh, antidepressant anti drugs um, that inhibit the MAO enzyme, which is the enzyme that metabolizes the uh, monoaminergic neurotransmitters like serotonin and norepinephrine. 
so this is particularly of interest in patients taking SSRIs, SNRIs, any serotonergic medications that are going to uh, increase the uh, levels of serotonin. So combined with inhibiting their de degradation, you can get a post-op uh, overwhelming increase in serotonin, leading to serotonin toxicity and encephalopathy. Uh, some of these, the symptoms of serotonin toxicity include auto, auto, autonomic instability, uh, neuromuscular hyperactivity, and ultimental status. Confusion, agitation, interesting phenomenon of uh, cortical blindness, um, where the patient is blind but is, does not recognize the fact. Um, so this, uh, this article in particular is reviewing these 27th case of this uh, post-op toxic metabolic encephalopathy from methylene blue for parathyroid surgery. Um, and then we'll go on to, goes on to review the other 26 cases. Um, so this 27th case is the first case in the U.S. of this uh, phenomenon uh, to ascribe the, um, the, the cause uh, from the MAO inhibiting properties of methylene blue. Um, so this is the, the 27th uh, reported case. This is a 55-year-old 50, female. Uh, she did have a history of depression controlled with citalopram, SSRI, and bupropione, which uh, is a reuptake inhibitor of norepinephrine and dopamine. Um, she was had a history of hyper, hyperparathyroid, so she was undergoing surgery for parathyroid adenoma. Um, and she did have no other significant past medical history. Um, she did have a few or, uh, orthopedic surgeries um, and without incident in any of these surgeries. So for this surgery, uh, she was given the standard methylene blue dose in the U.S. Um, for parathyroid surgery, which was 7.5 seven milligrams per kilogram preoperatively IV. Um, other countries, it has been traditionally a little lower. Um, and the surgical course is uh, otherwise unremarkable. She's hemodynamically stable. Uh, surgery was considered successful, uneventful, and they uh, successfully completely resected the parathyroid adenoma. Um, and even up to post-extubation, the patient was stable, except for maybe a mildly tachycardic. It wasn't until once she was in recovery that the patient became progressively agitated, confused. She was tachycardic in the uh, 115s, uh, hypertensive, um, although she did have good uh, oxygen saturation. She also showed uh, diaphoresis, and grossly, she had some pretty severe neurological abnormalities, and she was exhibiting coriform movements. Um, she's hyper-reflective, and she did exhibit this phenomenon of cortical blindness where uh, she was technically blind but not recognize um, the fact that she was blind. Um, so this is in the, the SICU. She was treated with benzos, uh, beta blockers. At this point, all their labs were within normal limits. All the imaging was within normal lim limits, including the head CT. She only had a mild increase in LFTs. Um, and they even checked a methylene blue level, which was normal. Um, methylene, methemoglobinemia level was normal. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, so basically, they were just symptomatically managing her, um, and she gradually improved over a few days. Uh, resolution of the neuromuscular symptoms and her ocular symptoms uh, resolved. She's less agitated, not longer confused. And by post-operative number two, she was pretty much at her baseline, which was just. 
normal mental status, alert, awake, oriented, and exhibited full recovery at 72 hours. Um, so looking back, they attributed all the uh, symptoms could be classified using the Hunter criteria as um, cl classic example of a serotonin, serotonin, serotonin toxicity. Uh, so the study goes on in, in comparison. They did a Medline search um, using keywords like methylene blue, encephalopathy, parathyroid surgery. And they had about uh, 24 case reports and uh, two retrospective studies looking at this post-op um, encephalopathy from methylene blue interacting with um, uh, serotonergic medications. Um, they, they basically just itemized uh, teased out some of the statistics from these studies, uh, which included uh, the average methylene blue dose ranged from 1.75 to 7.5 milligrams per kilogram. Um, of all the patients, they were on serotonergic medications. 81% were on SSRIs, 11% on SNRIs, uh, which was uh, venlafaxine, and 4%, which is actually only one patient, was on a TCA, uh, clomipramine. Um, they, of all the symptoms uh, in these 26 cases, 56% um, of the patients developed neural symptoms within an hour, one hour postoperatively. 100% um, uh, develops any sort of symptom within 11 hours postoperatively. Uh, the disposition of these patients, 40 47% are admitted to ICU. One patient had to go undergo hemodialysis, and one patient, unfortunately, had a cardiopulmonary arrest and expired. Um, and of all the patients, 89% had complete resolved symptoms by post-operative day number four. And of all these symptoms uh, noted, they all could be attributed to the uh, monoamine oxidase inhibition effects of the methylene. So in conclusion, uh, what this, this study was aiming to do was establish some guidelines um, they wanted to, you know, not uh, completely discourage the use of methylene blue for parathyroid surgery just because of its immense utility. Uh, and so they had some uh, general guidelines for its use. Uh, the first was, of course, is not to be used with any patient on any serotonergic medication, including an SSRI, SNRI, uh, even a TCA or uh, uh, antipsychotic medications. They're just encouraging the, I want to encourage uh, ENT surgeons to uh, be uh, more aware of the medication history of the patients and how some of these medications are working. Um, and they also are advocating for methylene blue not to be used in a patient with even a history of serotonin drug use in the recent past uh, because there was one case report of someone having uh, this uh, encephalopathy syndrome uh, to five weeks after they discontinued the use of the SSRI. And they're contending they want to have a black box warning instituted that methylene blue is an MAO oxidase inhibitor. Interesting conclusion, and it's going to you know, be up to certainly the FDA whether they do this, because I think the number of cases that cause problems are um, rising, and we're going to get to some in a second, the doses they used were sort of above what we would use for methemoglobinemia, in this case, 7.5 milligrams, sort of like a little bit above what we typically use. And then some of the symptoms I have 
are clearly sort of over the top as far as what we worry about with true serotonin syndrome. Several of these patients had aphasia, a couple of them had cortical blindness or other uh, degree of vision loss. Um, And while we sort of accept some degree of confusion grading all the way up to coma, these sort of localized um, sensory abnormalities have really not been described a lot or really at all in serotonin syndrome. And it sounds almost more like the iphosphamide encephalopathy that's been described in a couple of those cases. So there's sort of perhaps a new toxicity to high-dose methylene blue, and certainly when it's used with SSRI, seems to be the... uh, the high risk for that, I think it's reasonable to sort of tell people to stop using SSRIS NRI before surgery. So now to help clear up possibly some uh, of the physiology uh, involved in the CNS toxicity, uh, uh, and again, I'll have to credit uh, my colleague in Washington, uh, Bill Hurley, who actually turned us on to both the case and several of these articles. Um, there's two articles, one by someone who's sort of been the uh, rallying point about serotonin syndrome, Ken Gilman, and other review articles. So here is our talks fellow, Keith. Thank you, Zane. So I will wrap things up today with two articles, both discussing the association between methylene blue and serotonin syndrome. The first article is by Ken Gilman, who uh, is an Australian. His uh, article is entitled CNS Toxicity Involving Methylene Blue, the Exemplar for Understanding in predicting drug interactions that precipitate serotonin toxicity. This comes from the Journal of Psychopharmacotherapy in February of this year. Uh, In the abstract, they basically start off with saying that it's been recently discovered that methylene blue may cause CNS toxicity, and reviewing the literature, this CNS toxicity is probably most consistent with serotonin toxicity. Methylene blue, as we've talked about at length today, has been used for many things, including uh, methemoglobinemia, vasoplegia, uh, parathyroidectomies, uh, encephalopathy uh, from certain drugs, um, etc. There has already been a warning in the UK regarding the risk of CNS toxicity uh, with methylene blue. And there has been recent in vitro work which confirms prior theories that methylene uh, blue is an AM, or excuse me, M- MAO inhibitor, particularly MAOA, though MAOB seems to be inhibited as well. Though most of the case reports that we've mentioned so far suggest doses as high as 5 to 7.5 milligrams per kilogram. The in vitro work seems to suggest that inhibition may occur uh, at uh, doses equivalent in humans of one milligram per kilogram, which is what we commonly would use in someone with methemoglobinemia, for example. So serotonin toxicity is complex. Uh, Dr. Gilman uh, dives into the subject briefly, but I think wisely uh, tries to avoid a robust discussion. Uh, in this paper, uh, they utilize the Hunter serotonin toxicity criteria, uh, which has been quoted as having an 84% sensitivity and a 97% specificity for serotonin syndrome. They uh, diagram serotonin toxicity with something called the serotonin triangle, which is a really fascinating visual piece that allows the clinician to assign a set of signs and symptoms as attributable to serotonin toxicity. 
and the underlying flavor to the triangle is that what you need is something that is both highly serotonergic and will inhibit MAO at the same time. Uh, part of the argument or part of the discussion goes on to say that serotonin syndrome is a rare beast in the person who has only one serotonergic exposure, i.e. if you are on an SSRI and you overdose on that, it's unlikely that you're going to exhibit serotonin toxicity. Now, people approach serotonin syndrome and serotonin toxicity from different sides of the fence. Uh, uh, physicians like Dr. Gilman uh, tends to take a very strong tone and tends to be very disciplined in his um, definition of serotonin toxicity. He won't use the word serotonin syndrome. And um, unlike uh, uh, many people in the past, he finds that uh, a specific criteria must be present for the diagnosis of serotonin toxicity. Uh, if you look on uh, page 3 or figure 2, uh, it basically spells out the uh, clinical criteria uh, that one must have to make the diagnosis of serotonin toxicity, which basically means a serotonergic agent, a potent serotonergic agent with one of five different clinical signs or symptoms. Now, it's interesting, he also comments that serotonin toxicity is a specific, well-delineated toxidrome that can be diagnosed with accuracy and confidence. Um, I'm not sure that I share that same belief. I think it can actually be somewhat subtle at times. Um, but according to Dr. Gilman, uh, it is not a diagnosis of exclusion and should be readily made by the astute uh, physician. Nonetheless, the uh, paper goes on to review the current literature using a Medline search uh, looking at cases of possible serotonin uh, toxicity in the setting of uh, methylene blue use. They were able to identify 14 cases. Uh, 13 cases, uh, in their opinion, were um, greater than or equal to a probable certainty. Uh, IV uh, methylene blue was the only form of methylene blue that they found in the patients with this condition. Uh, most of the cases uh, were associated with doses of 5 milligrams per kilogram or higher, which means that there were a few um, who developed the toxicity at lower levels. And uh, the majority of the definite cases uh, actually developed severe serotonin syndrome, which usually meant an ICU stay. In the discussion, they mentioned that there's good data now that suggests methylene blue does, in fact, induce serotonin syndrome. Uh, it's probably inaccurate to say that low doses are safe, and basically shame on the FDA and the UK MHRA to not mention this risk uh, in prior reports of um, methylene blue indication. Obviously, there's limitations to the study. This is retrospective uh, in nature. Uh, again, serotonin syndrome is a clinical diagnosis, and uh, certainly um, under scrutiny of people reviewing charts, and so uh, people could be inappropriately included or excluded from this diagnosis, particularly when you look backwards in time through the charts. Uh, the second uh, paper has a very similar message, though they take a slightly... Uh, a less robust tone. Uh, this comes from Dr. Ng and Dr. Cameron um, and is entitled The Role of Methylene Blue in Serotonin Syndrome, a Systematic Review. 
This comes from Psychosomatics uh, in June of this year. Uh, they um, have uh, reviewed uh, cases and uh, considered the diagnosis of serotonin syndrome. So again, a different uh, word to describe essentially the same process. They used a Medline and PsychMed info search. They were able to find nine individual case reports and two retrospective reviews, 26 total cases, 25 of which had possible serotonin syndrome. Uh, so again, parathyroid surgery met hemoglobinemia, vasodilatory hypertension, encephalopathy, and even bipolar disorder were the indications for methylene blues use as quoted in this uh, paper. Uh, using the Medline and PsychMed uh, search strategies, as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, they sought to study uh, relevant cases uh, involving methylene blue use. Um, they looked at anyone who developed uh, a constellation of symptoms, which include an acute confusional state, neuropsychiatric complaints, or autonomic instability. Uh, of the nine case reports, eight were... Um, uh, eight patients were on SSRIs, SNRIs, or clomipramine. Uh, in the two retrospective studies, uh, they identified several possible cases. Um, these, again, were in patients who were on an SSRI already. And when they pooled all of the data together, uh, they found that the confusion rate, so the post-operative confusion rate, because it's essentially just folks... Under, undergoing parathyroid surgery that they found the cases. Um, the confusion rate was nearly 38% for those who went into surgery already on an SSRI or SNRI. Uh, in conclusion, they found 26 patients. Their, their conclusion was actually more a discussion than a conclusion. Um, several patients uh, required ICU care. Um, case reports so far had good evidence for serotonin syndrome. Um, again, these retrospective case series and reviews lacked data to say for certain um, uh, of the condition. Uh, they, again, note that uh, methylene blue is an MAOI inhibitor, particularly MAOA. Um, there's not enough data right now to say what the dose response curve is or at which dose of an SSRI you are on that puts you at risk uh, for the condition. They end with the obvious conclusion that if you can avoid the combination, you should. So if you can stop your SSRI a few weeks before surgery, you should do so. If you have an alternative way of performing your parathyroidectomy without using methylene blue, you should. Um, and caution methylene blue in patients with shock if they're on an SRI. I think that's easy because there's many other effective therapies besides uh, methylene blue. Uh, summing up both articles, I think it's fair to say that there is a likely association between uh, these two um, medications. Uh, as I go forward and uh, recommend the use of methylene blue for various conditions, I will now 
be uh, more likely to inquire about the use of SSRIs or SNRIs or even tricyclics uh, before I recommend uh, proceeding with uh, antidote therapy. Yeah, so a big word of caution on using uh, methylene blue, although, again, the doses used in many of the cases that were in your article and the other article really <laughs> overlap, but there seems to be somewhere in the mid-20s number of cases of doses between 5 and 7.5 milligrams per kilogram. Um, so the question still remains whether the doses we use has ever precipitated this, and I don't think there's any case of serotonin syndrome from methemoglobinemia treatment per se, but they go on to note that now that people's awareness of this has increased, perhaps uh, people will report this um, here, hopefully to MedWatch in the UK, they said, since they put a warning on the package about you know risk of serotonergic activity, they've received five case reports as of this uh, 2008 review, of, which were not published, but case reports according to the uh, Medicines Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which is sort of the, the UK's version of our FDA MedWatch system. So, um, in in that article, they mentioned that there's now 12 trials registered under clinicaltrials.gov for methylene blue, and and that, and of course, a visit to Denver recently for NACCT showed us that there's some other uses for methylene blue out there. And probably the most intriguing one, which is the newest one, which is really a new, new thing, is methylene blue for the treatment of septic shock. So this is a review article, literally hot off the presses from pharmacotherapy um, from 2010. And it talks about shock and methylene blue case series that have been done so far. Uh, to, you know, Again, shock is inadequate o tissue oxygenation, and sepsis is you know, organ dysfunction related to an infection or an inflammatory process, and you know they go on to talk a little bit about one of the reasons that we may get uh, shock is decreased vascular tone, and a lot of this decreased vascular tone is due to pro-inflammatory cytokines and also to nitric oxide production. And there may be other reasons like vasopressin deficiency, activation of ATP, and activation of what's called the inducible form of nitric oxide synthase, which actually makes more nitric oxide. If you have more nitric oxide, you end up with this, what they will eventually call vasoplegia or vasodilatation, uh, vasodilatory shock. So they, some of these other studies went back and did a variety of literature searches through Embase and Medline looking for people who got treated with methylene blue, which is suspected to inhibit this last enzyme, INOS a nitric, inducible nitric oxide synthesized. Uh, so increased nitric oxide production under normal physiologic circumstances, L-arginine is converted to nitric oxide at low concentrations by a calcium-dependent isoform of nitric oxide, which is called C-NOS. Um, and because of high electrophilicity, uh, nitric oxide is highly reactive. It is broken down to nitrite and nitrates, and the half-life of this uh, reaction is like two seconds to 30 seconds, so it goes quickly. And then nitric oxide is produced. It freely diffuses across cell membranes, activates an intercellular secondary messenger, which in this case is guanylate cyclase, which helps form cyclic GMP, sort of the opposite of AMP, and results in smooth muscle relaxation. And there's a variety of negative feedback mechanisms to keep this in check. However, in sepsis, things break down. 
We have inflammatory mediators, including endotoxin, cytokinase, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-2, and all of these induce a calcium-independent intercellular INOS, leading to sustained production of nitric oxide. And this is non-responsive to normal negative feedback, so things become out of check. And with this, you have in the heart, impairment of the heart's ability to use ATP, so therefore, therefore decreased heart, cardiac output by decreased inotropy. And increasing levels in the periphery leads to vasopressor therapy, decreased responsiveness, altered distribution of blood flow, capillary leak, and multi-organ multi uh, dysfunction syndrome. And the beneficial effects of nitric oxide perhaps somewhat offset this is increased oxygen delivery to ischemic tissue. So maybe there's a ontologic reason why we generate nitric oxide when we're sick is it might redistribute uh, oxygen to the tissues that are at most risk. So the question is, can we, knowing this physiology, come up with an agent that acts downstream from this to inhibit this nitrate oxide-induced vasodilatation through inhibition of guanylate cyclase? And in fact, our old friend Methylene Blue does this. Um, and it's a dye that's been used as noted for literally over a century for one reason or another for many causes, uh, still seeking out a new uh, diagnosis. It's a cofactor, as we mentioned, the NADPH phosphate reductase, and it's also used, as we mentioned, in the treatment of a variety of diseases. So they looked at, um, first, a little bit of pharmacokinetic uh, data. It's rapidly distributed into a variety, when given IV through into all the tissues, brain, heart, lungs, liver, every place where ATP and CMP is active. Its clearance is um, about three liters per minute, Urinary excretion is about 28%, and one-third of the drug is recovered in the urine as leucomethylene blue, which, of course, is the agent that we need to generate to uh, fix methemoglobinemia. That actually serves as the electron donor, which reverses uh, the Fe plus 3 charge in methemoglobin. And so the observed terminal half-life of methylene blue is about six hours, and as we've seen in several of these studies, that's about Q6 hours, what some of the dosing regimens have been for iphosphamide-induced neurotoxicity. So they went back and they found 11 different studies, which I'll kind of go through a few in a little bit more detail, but many of them have a similar theme. There was one that was a randomized double-blind placebo study, so probably one of the better ones. It was done in 2001. It included patients who were in septic shock in the MICU for the two years prior to publication. They all had Swangans pulmonary artery catheters in, so they're able to measure all these hemodynamic parameters that are going to be important. And they either received methylene blue, two milligrams over 15 minutes, followed by two hours later a continuous infusion, titrated up at either 0 0.25, 0 0.51, or two milligrams per kilogram per hour, or a placebo. And they had 10 patients in each arm of the study. And after six hours at the start of the infusion, methylene blue increased the MAP, the mean arterial pressure, compared with baseline, 91 millimeters of mercury versus 76 millimeters of mercury, and over those of placebo, which really didn't change much from baseline, also in the 72 millimeters of mercury. Similarly, it increased systemic vascular resistance, going along with the nitric oxide theory of vasodilatation, and the effect lasted for about 24 hours. Methylene blue preserved 
but did not increase oxygen delivery, cardiac index, stroke volume index, or left ventricular stroke work. While those in the placebo group, all those factors deteriorated over the next 24 hours. And it also seemed to reduce the vasopressor requirements so that patients could be titrated down, whether they were on norepinephrine, epinephrine, or dopamine, by anywhere from 40 to 87% of their peak doses with it. Didn't seem to have any detrimental effect on gas exchange, although they did not necessarily check methemoglobin levels or hemolysis, but they noticed there was no difference in any lab values, including the bilirubin level um, as well. Unfortunately, clinical outcomes were not so good as in seven patients in the methylene uh, blue group resolved their shock state and three in the placebo group, but I think a fair number of these patients all, all died, which is a kind of recurring theme with shock anyway. Um, weaning of the vasopressors was interesting in that it may be something you can use as a sort of a last-ditch effort, maybe not so last-ditch effort, to get people who are on two or three vasopressors off their vasopressors and improve some of these factors that have to do with cardiac output, such as left ventricular stroke work index, right ventricular stroke work index as well. And in this trial, they noted that corticosteroids were prohibited, so this wasn't sort of a, a confounding variable that they were getting high-dose steroids, which has been discussed in others. Uh, there's one other controlled tri uh, trial with methylene blue for septic shock. They tried to evaluate the ability of methylene blue to decrease the detrimental effects of cytokines. They had 30 patients with severe sepsis, but without shock, who were randomly assigned to either receive methylene blue as a continuous infusion of a half a milligram per kilogram per hour for six hours, or placebo, and they measured concentrations of tumor necrosis factor alpha, IL, 1B, 2, 6, and a variety of other interleukines, inflammatory rates at baseline and at reasonable intervals. These patients were receiving corticosteroids, uh, these patients again were not receiving corticosteroids, and seven patients in the methylene blue group and ten in the placebo group looking at their numbers actually were in septic shock, so they weren't just septic themselves. Those who got methylene blue had similarly higher mean arterial pressures compared to baseline and compared to placebo, also got the blood pressures in a similar range, starting in the 74 millimeters of mercury up to 85, and it didn't change with the placebo. But unfortunately, the MAP decreased back to baseline values after 24 hours after the transfusion, after the infusion of methylene blue, so the effect wears off rather quickly. There was no difference in pH, PO2, PCO2, PO2 to FiO2 ratio, arterial oxygen saturation, and surprisingly, really didn't do much for any of the cytokine concentrations or the interleukin-2 concentrations, so that's not where it was acting. It was acting somewhere else, again, supporting the theory that perhaps it works on this nitric, inducible nitric oxide synthetase. The hospital mortality was lower in this trial compared to other trials because only 26% of these people died, so maybe they were selecting people who were not quite so septic, because usually we're seeing 60 to 70% mortality from people with septic shock. There's a variety of other studies that all have a great degree of similarities in that they pretty much all had Swan-Gant catheters in. They were sort of open-labeled methylene blue infusions of 1 to 2, and some of them up to 4 milligrams per kilo, as boluses and some with infusions. And generally, these people were quite ill. And almost all of them, their mean arterial pressure went up with a peak effect, at least in the first trial, within 30 minutes of starting the infusion. And a few of them had better blood pressure, mean arterial pressures than we described previously, going up as high as 109 millimeters. 
The effect is transient, and after you give the bolus, it kind of goes back to normal after about two hours. And all these other factors that we looked at were also statistically significant. Heart rate came down, cardiac index went up, left ventricular stroke work and right ventricular stroke work indexes went up, um, and oxygen delivery improved in a few, but not all of these studies. Rather than belabor the point of each individual trials, because uh, they all had the same sort of outcomes, in the first trial I just talked about, eight of the nine patients died, and all of them were similar, like almost everybody in all these trials died despite that. So they were sort of picking people who were moribund, insective shock, a lot of them with acute lung injury. It sort of helped in their hemodynamics transiently, but once we stopped the drug, it, it quickly went away, and unfortunately the because it didn't change any of the inflammatory factors, those inflammatory factors probably were not uh, going away, and those led to most of these patients dying with death rates of 80 to 90% in most of these studies. Um, there's about four or five other trials out there, and several of them observational studies, but they all pretty much come up with about the same conclusion. In one of them, interestingly, the lactic acid level went down as well that was measured. Um, they talk about the adverse effects, which is kind of what we talk about. The skin turns blue. Pulse oximetry readings become worthless. Um, there's a risk for uh, hemolytic anemia, especially if you're using high doses, which were used in one study, 4 milligrams per kilogram, although they didn't note any hemolytic anemia in that trial. They mentioned, of course, the G6PD uh, phosphate uh, problem, especially in these patients who may have transfusion requirements. You don't know which blood are being transfused. But it seems to support the role of this drug as what is now being described as a vasophagic agent. And we saw a case report where it was used for amlodipine overdose um, at the national conference, which makes a little bit of sense because you have cardiogenic shock, perhaps with vasodilatory shock combined, and perhaps using IV methylene blue will prevent that, especially when you have a limited event like an overdose where the drug's going to go away in 24, 48 hours if you put the patient on this drug perhaps things will, will get better. Um, again, the you know, limitations, these are all small studies, 10 to 20 patients, so even smaller than that. Um, some of these are just open-label trials, sort of exploring the theory that this drug does anything. The mortality doesn't seem to have changed dramatically by using this drug, although they may be picking you know, patients who are really too sick to survive much of anything, which has been sort of the search for the golden ring and sepsis shock treatment anyway with a variety of agents that has reversed the high mortality in this uh, disease. So they talk about future research, of course, is needed, and I, I kid you not, there is a randomized controlled trial of intermittent boluses of methylene blue in patients with sepsis called the SMRF trial. <laughs> awesome. And uh, the investigators are doing this open-label uh, study looking at uh, the effect of methylene blue with or without inhaled nitric oxide for sepsis and acute lung injury. So stay tuned to the SMRFs, and we'll find out really uh, what methylene blue is capable of. So to kind of work in the last of our little poem there, something borrowed, so to borrow a phrase from hypothermia, I guess in the future you, you may not be dead until you're blue and dead. <laughs> <laughs> So Pat has a few uh, questions for those out there taking the boards and stuff like that. We'll see if uh, our fellow knows. So, okay, Pat. 
Alright, so <clears throat> what what groups are at risk for G6PD? Ethnic groups. Ethnic groups. So who my who are you worried about? Their standing was African Americans and it's about ten to eleven percent in African Americans. People of Mediterranean descent. Yes. The two groups that yes. come to mind. Which one is typically more severe? Uh Mediterranean descent. Yes, yes. African Americans and their gene that is it kind of is a gradient of G6PD deficiency, whereas in uh, the Mediterranean descent, it kind of is, it's pretty much all gone, really functional. And then, what group has a baseline met hemoglobin baseline elevated met hemoglobinemia level? Uh, not necessarily ethnic group. I don't know. My guess is that there are people who are born without met hemoglobinemia reductase. Well, there there is there is a family in uh, West Virginia that has that, but that it's not the Hatfield and McCoys, is it? Yeah, close. It? Yes, <laughs> there's actually a blue family. If you look them up on the internet, they're pretty entertaining. But uh, neonates, uh, because they have they have an innate they're metabolizing and breaking down hemoglobin, and so they actually have a, an elevated level of uh, met hemoglobin at baseline. I, and in fact, one of the reasons we see or get calls is kids who are getting uh, an agent that stimulates it is usually getting uh, teething gels that have benzocaine in it, and the benzocaine precipitates the methemoglobinemia in them rather than older children because they have an inability to uh, control the degree of methemoglobinemia that uh, occurs from that. Yeah, and the, the enzymes actually aren't particularly active until about four, four to five months, so it's just kind of gradually increasing. So they're at risk because they are their enzymes to reduce the methemoglobin are not particularly active, and they just are making more of it. That's why they say avoid well water. No well water. <laughs> That's right, because all the nitrates that run off from the from the farms and the fertilizers of well water and neonates is a problem. But as we've seen with uh, Cynthia's papers, there's other reasons why neonates may get methem methylene. Uh, blue treatments that end up with methemoglobinemia. So I think we've taken a, a big tour of everything that we possibly can say, all those, a couple of final words about Dapsone. Dapsone. So Dapsone, currently, uh, my wife's an ID doctor, I'm sitting here for the first half, and so she says it's used basically uh, for PCP prophylaxis, for a sulfa allergy, bone marrow suppression, and she'd guess about 25% of HIV patients with a... Uh, with a CD4 count less than 200 actually are on Dapsone. So that, that's a population where you will potentially see it. And she says that they test, before they put someone on Dapsone, they test everybody for G6PD deficiency. That's great. What's the, what, do you know what the incidence of G6PD deficiency in that population it is of a random one? Okay. I'm not sure she's ever run into it, particularly in Portland. I'm not sure we have a lot of the uh, yeah. uh, ethnic groups that are subjected to that. Yeah. Um, and just to bury one thing that was mentioned, uh, the use of Dapsone for black widow spider bites oh, is only to be condemned. Brown, brown recluse spider bites, excuse me, is to be condemned because it really has no role. And although we still get calls, someone doing uh, up-to-date searches mm -hmm. on that and asking us if it's any utility, which it is not. So anyway, something blue to think about. Um, until next time, Zane Horowitz and the Oregon Poison Center crew, we'll see you then. Woohoo!